All right. Well, we come today to one of Jesus' uh, most famous discourses, uh, commonly referred to as the Good Shepherd Discourse. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10. <clears throat> John 10. Uh, in this discourse, this, this teaching, Jesus presents himself as the one legitimate um, shepherd of God's people. Um, shepherding analogies are not necessarily lost on, on us in Christian circles. We understand the, the concept of shepherd and, and even sheep, as I pointed out in Isaiah 53. Um, we, we know that oftentimes a pastor is a, is a shepherd, um, and that certainly isn't lost on the Jewish people in this passage. But I will tell you, outside of Christian circles and churches, that's, it's not, people don't really understand that, that concept. Uh, years ago, I was at a, a, a large pastor's conference. It's in Southern California. It happens every year. And it's one of the biggest ones I know of. Thousands of pastors come from all over the world uh, to this conference in Little Sun Valley, California, which is just a few miles actually from Hollywood. Um, and it's called the Shepherd's Conference. That's what it's called. And, and no pastor going there is confused by the title. But as you can imagine, um, when people come from all over the world, they fill up all the local hotels around there. And we were uh, a bunch of pastors from one church in this local hotel. And I could tell by the look on the face of the young woman behind the desk as she's kind of looked at all of us. And we were sort of, you know, casual, smart dressed, looking at us all going, what on earth? Where she finally, I knew what she was thinking, but she finally just asked us when we came to the, came to the front. She said, can I just ask you, are you all actual shepherds? <laughs> <laughs> yep, and the sheep are coming, so I hope you got more room. <laughs> and I just thought, you know, this poor girl, she's sitting there, she's looking around going like, I didn't know that was an actual trade that you could keep doing you know people actually sat out in fields with shepherds much less that it would necessitate a conference like what do you do to shepherds conference well this is the latest shepherd staff it's got the kung fu grip and a nice little crook i mean what would you you know what what do you do at a shepherds conference so we had a chance to tell her well actually we're pastors and uh, you know shepherds kind of the pastor of the the child Oh, she had never heard that before. It was mind-blowing to her and probably quite a relief because she probably felt she was just in the dark all her life. But comparing people to shepherds and sheep obviously was not uncommon in ancient times, uh, particularly for the Jews because, well, one, shepherding was a common trait. Uh, but two, uh, the Old Testament made uh, frequent use of shepherding analogies. Uh, many of the, um, the Old Testament great leaders the patriarchs, right, were shepherds. Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, they were all shepherds. Uh, the great hero of Israel, Moses, was a shepherd. And even the great King, King David, all shepherds. And as great uh, uh, leaders as they all were, the people considered uh, God as their great shepherd. Uh, Psalm 80, verse 1, says, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who dwell between the cherubim, shine forth. So between the cherubim, right, the, 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 the testimony seat on the Ark of the Covenant, right, that's the Shekinah glory where God would dwell. And they're referring to that God as the shepherd of Israel. And God himself promised that he would shepherd his flock. And I want to show you there today uh, in a passage in Ezekiel chapter 34. So if you would just start, uh, turn there with me to begin with, Ezekiel 34. If you want to just go to the middle of your Bible to Psalms and Proverbs and then go to the right. Ecclesiastes, Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. You'll come to it that way. Um, that's where Ezekiel is. Ezekiel chapter 34. And mark it with something if you can, because we will come back to it later. But this morning, I just want to start by reading a little section, verses 11 to 16, that are kind of in the middle of this chapter. It's quite a very interesting passage. Verse 11, Ezekiel 34 for thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so will I seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, in the valleys and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture, and their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. 
There they shall lie down in a good fold and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. God is the shepherd to his people. And what's interesting about this passage, it's very clear who is going to be the shepherd. But when you skip ahead toward the end, verse uh, 22 through 24, we start to get a little bit of a change. Look at verse 22. Therefore, I will save my flock and they shall no longer be, be a prey and I will judge between sheep and sheep. I will establish one shepherd over them and he shall feed them, my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. This is one of those great passages that sort of has a dual track, right? On the one side, you see that God himself will tend his sheep, right? I will find them. I will take them to new pasture. I will feed them. But on another track, all of a sudden, we have a a different one. He's going to send his servant David to be the one shepherd. Jesus the Messiah. That's specifically what he's speaking about. In fact, Micah chapter 5 verse 4 prophesies about this. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. This is the Messiah, the descendant of David. That is what whom uh, is being spoken of here. And as we come to this passage in John 10, Jesus, as the Messiah, is placing himself right in the middle of this sort of messianic picture. He is the legitimate shepherd of God's people. And be clear, that's what we're talking about when we speak of a shepherd. He's the leader of God's people here. And nowhere in all of scripture is Jesus Christ more clearly portrayed as the true legitimate shepherd of God's people than right here in John chapter 10. Now, Before we get into it, I got to remind you that this discourse flows directly out of the previous uh, passage, John uh, chapter 9. If you look back there, there's no time gap. Uh, There's nothing that tells us there's any sort of uh, break other than we went from chapter 9 to chapter 10, which isn't divinely inspired. That's just an editor, right, putting where they wanted to divide the chapter. So look at verse 41, just to kind of get back into your mindset of what was taking place. This is Jesus' response to the religious leaders who sort of mockingly asked, oh, are we blind also? And his response is this in verse 41. If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. Now, if you remember, that's in response to their comment about being blind. And what Jesus means is that, If they would admit that they were blind, meaning spiritually blind, then they would have no sin because they would be confessing and Jesus would forgive their sin. But instead, they insist that they see, and so they're still in their sin. And this is to the religious leaders, those that are responsible to guide people to spiritual truth, to spiritual nourishment, to safety. But they had just excommunicated a man who was looking for that very thing. Do you see that? So they're... They are blind guides. They're leading people astray. They spare no effort to win even one proselyte, only to make him twice as much a son of hell as they. Those are Jesus' words. And so there is a a, a dark backdrop here of Jesus' teaching, and it's the blatant irresponsibility of the religious leaders. Their leadership is illegitimate. They're bad shepherds. They're bad shepherds. That's why later Paul will exhort the Ephesian elders in Acts, right? He gets them together and he tells them to shepherd their flock because he's worried that later savage wolves would come in and they wouldn't spare the flock. Jesus is taking seriously the role of shepherds. You're the leaders of these people and they haven't taken it seriously and they don't care about the sheep. So let's look at the passage today. We're going to try to get through quite a few verses. John chapter 10, we're going to look at the first 21 verses today. So let's read through the passage. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice. 
and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself, and I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Therefore there was a division among, again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, He has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Let's pray. God, once again, we come to you today for divine instruction from your word. What a, an amazing passage we have before us of Jesus' teaching. Lord, straight from his mouth, I pray that you would open our hearts to what you want to teach us today. We want to hear from you, the good shepherd. So lead us into truth today for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, a couple of things. We'll just sort of have a, just a easy outline as, uh, as we go through this. Uh, first and foremost, this first six verses as a kind of an overarching analogy uh, that Jesus uh, will use uh, here. Um, in fact, in verse, uh, verse six, just to point it out, Jesus used this illustration, uh, is the word used there, um, is, is just to kind of give you uh, an idea that it's sort of like a parable or a, a figure of speech. And um, when he uses this one, he will take this one and then sort of expand and develop it in the rest of the verses. So let's look at it. Here, first and foremost, Jesus pre presents himself as the true shepherd. Jesus is the true uh, shepherd. Look at verse 1. Most assuredly, I know I don't need to keep pointing that out. That's unique to John. It just means there's a very important statement coming out. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. Now, this almost seems like a very jarring transition. He's just been speaking about sort of spiritual blindness, and the, the, the Pharisees have just sort of mockingly said, oh, so you think we're blind too, right? And then he jumps into this whole idea about sheep. You've got to kind of change your mind and go a completely different place and go, okay, where are we, Jesus? Where did we just go? And so let me help you take, take you there, right? You've got sort of a, a countryside where a shepherd would have his sheep, but that during the nighttime, they would take them into this sheep fold, a sheep pen, right, with walls. And it would have a door. It would bring them in there, and there where they would be safe from wild animals and safe from thieves and robbers. And so the illustration is quite easy to see. There's a doorway that takes you into the fold. But if anyone doesn't use the doorway, they're probably not there for the benefit of the sheep, right? If they're climbing up over walls to get in, you can rest assured they're there for no good. And so people have been climbing up over the walls, coming into this sheep pen. They're ones who come up some other way. What is he referring to here? Well, he's referring to these, the false shepherds of Israel. And Israel has had a long line of false shepherds. And those corrupt characteristics of the Jewish leaders that Jesus is referring to here, um, describing them as, as shepherds, that's nothing new. You can go to Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 21. See what Jeremiah writes about it. For the shepherds have become dull-hearted 
and have not sought the Lord. Therefore, they shall not prosper, and all their flocks shall be scattered. So very, very, you know, um, uh, shepherd, sheep terminology, visually, but we're not talking about actual shepherds, and we're not talking about actual sheep. Jeremiah is talking about the leaders of Israel. And because those leaders of Israel failed to seek the Lord, what happened to the sheep? They're scattered. They're all over the place. They're not safely in the fold. They're all over the place. Later in Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 6, he says this, My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. They've turned them away on the mountains. They've gone from mountain to hill. They've forgotten their resting place. The people are lost, but note this. It's not the fault of the people. It's the fault of the leaders because they led them astray. The shepherds. And God promised judgment upon those shepherds. If you marked your passage in Ezekiel 34, go back there now. Um, Ezekiel 34, we read verses 11 through 16. But I want to read you now what comes before those verses. This is the judgment upon the shepherds that leads to God's conclusion, well, I'm just going to go rescue my sheep myself. Because the shepherds failed to lead them. The shepherds failed in their jobs. So God says, well, I will gather the sheep. I will feed the sheep. I'll have to do all that. But look at the judgment upon the shepherds first. It starts in verse 2 of Ezekiel 34. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God to the shepherds. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost. But with force and cruelty you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. Yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and no one was seeking or searching for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord God, surely because my flock became a prey and my flock became food for every beast of the field because there was no shepherd, nor did my shepherds search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my flock at their hand. I will cause them to cease feeding the sheep and the shepherds shall feed themselves no more. For I will deliver my flock from their mouths that they may no longer be food for them. Do you see the care that God has for the sheep? You're not feeding them. You're not protecting them. They're wandering around. You shepherds are lousy. They're worthless. But remember, later in that passage, I'm going to send my servant, David. He's going to be the shepherd. And so here Jesus enters the scene and all of a sudden starts talking about sheepfolds and says it's thieves that break into a sheep pen. Well, this is where he's going. This is the mindset that he has, that God has judged the leaders of Israel because they've failed in their duty. They have been irresponsible. They've created a false religious system based upon their own self-righteousness, right? Their works-based righteousness, and they were supposed to be leading the people to God. So God himself has to seek out his own people, and he sends the true shepherd. That's the picture here, and that's what Jesus talks about in the next verse. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. So that's an obvious illustration. The, The shepherd goes through the door. He has no need to climb up over the wall. He has a hireling at the door. He's going to let him in. Um, he, he, he has the right to enter is the idea here. He has the right to enter. And when he does, the sheep hear his voice. Now, apparently it is true. I'm not a shepherd myself in terms of actual sheep here, right? But that, that sheep do recognize the voice of their shepherd and they will respond to him and not to anyone else. They'll follow the shepherd. But what is Jesus referring to here? Well, you kind of have to get the whole picture, so we need to read the other two verses. Look at verse 4 and 5. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So you have the false shepherds, the thieves, robbers, right? They've not used the door. They're climbing up over the wall. And a real shepherd uses the door. And when he does, the sheep respond to him. 
He calls them. They recognize his voice. He brings them out. They follow him. They trust him. They know him. And the sheep won't follow the voice of a stranger. Why? Well, it's foreign to them. They don't recognize it. They don't, they don't know it. To better understand this, we have to ask a couple of questions. Who are the sheep in this fold? What is Jesus talking about? Who are the sheep? Well, I've heard a lot of different things. Oh, the sheep is the church. Oh, the sheep is heaven. I don't think so. I think by the context, it's very clear who the sheep are. It's Israel. Because the Pharisees have failed as shepherds, and God said, I'm going to send my true shepherd, and it's for the nation of Israel, particularly when you consider the other sheep phrase in verse 16, and we'll get there. Because there's other sheep that he wants to include in that fold. He's talking about Israel here. That's the context. And those of this sheepfold who truly belong to the shepherd will follow the shepherd. They will not follow strangers. And so then you have to ask, well, who is the shepherd? I think that is clear. I've already made that clear, right? This is the Messiah. This is Jesus. And now the whole illustration sort of is lost on the Pharisees. They don't, they don't get it. Verse 6 tells us that. They don't understand the things that are spoken to them. And I hope it's not lost on us. I'm going to clarify it by kind of going back to chapter one, of, uh, chapter 1 of John. Now, John really ruined the whole story for us, if you remember chapter 1, because he kind of gave us the whole story at the beginning. We kind of know how it all turns out, particularly in verse 11 of John chapter 1. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. So we know, we've been knowing all along uh, that, that he was not going to be received, Jesus. But the question is, who is his own? The word is idios. And it means something that pertains to oneself or belongs to oneself. And in chapter 1, verse 11, it was very clear. He came to his own, his own people. But I would tell you even more specifically, the leaders, right? Because it is the leaders that were responsible to lead the people. And Jesus, a leader himself, the chief shepherd, the master, comes to them and they don't accept him. He's come to his own. Now, I don't know if you've noticed it. But his own, the word idios, is used two other times right here in the passage we're in, in verses 3 and 4. And I think it's significant. Let's look at those passages again. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. You have a sheep fold, but when Jesus comes, his own sheep follow him out of the fold. Not all of the sheep, only his own sheep. Do you see it? He only calls his own. He only brings out his own. And Jesus calls them. Why then? Because they're his own. They're already belonging to him. We looked at this last week again by looking back at John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me, will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Jesus is calling them because he owns them already. They're my sheep. They're his own. Does that make sense? And true followers of Christ have been given to Jesus and consequently they will follow him and they won't follow strangers. Do you see all that? They're going to follow him and they're not going to follow the voice of someone they don't know. What's the idea here? Well, true believers if you kind of go back to the spiritual blindness analogy, now see divine truth, don't they? Because the spiritual darkness has been removed and they spiritually see divine truth. So they see divine truth, but reject error. If you're a true believer, if a true believer, you're not going to be duped. You're going to hear his voice. You're going to follow his voice. You're not going to follow the voice of a stranger. Why? You recognize it as false. Does that make sense? There's a great passage in John we don't have to, uh, 1 John chapter 4, we don't have time to go to today, but John talks about it. You can read on your own, John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, about the testing of the spirits, right? So you can test the spirits of truth or error so that you can know what is something that is true and what is something that is error. I encourage you to read that because it's very important for a believer to know, how do I know divine truth? How do I know what is error? There's a test there so, spirit, so the believers can know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. But what I do want you to know is that Anyone that abandons truth for error was never uh, a true sheep of his to begin with. And John says that in 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. 
For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. They weren't part of us to begin with is what he's saying. They weren't his own. Does that make sense? His own sheep follow him. Here's the thing. The Pharisees, they've been so ingrained in the belief that because they're descendants of Abraham, they're of the true flock of God. We're descendants of Abraham. They said it over and over again. So we're the true flock. We're the true leaders. They've completely missed what Jesus meant here. Jesus says, no, you're false shepherds. And there's only one true shepherd. And just like the, the parables that Jesus tells, this figure of speech or illustration reveals spiritual truth to his followers, but it hides the truth from those who reject truth. They don't see it. They don't understand it. And so Jesus develops the illustration in a little bit different of a way. And here's where it kind of fleshes out more. Look at verse 7. Jesus tells us that he's the door to the fold. So first he's the true shepherd, but now he's the door to the fold. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, there it is again, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. So here we start to get mixed metaphors. Jesus is both the door and the shepherd. He's both. Also, I should point this out. This is the third of seven I am statements in John, right? The gospel of John is famous for the I am statements. This is the third. Uh, We've already had uh, I am the bread of life back in chapter six, and I am the light of the world in chapter eight. So this is the third one. I am the door. I'm the door. What does Jesus mean by I am the door. Well, think back to the, the, the sheepfold again. The shepherd uh, typically would stay at the door and inspect the sheep and let the sheep into the, into the fold. Um, and then he would sleep in that doorway. And then when he'd wake up, then he would be also the one to sort of help them exit to graze and, uh, in the pasture. And the point is that he's functioning as the doorway, right? Because he is in the doorway. And so Jesus is saying, I'm that one. I am in the door. I am the door. And the point is, is this, it's only through Jesus that you can enter this fold, right? It's the only through Jesus that the lost can approach the father, ultimately receive forgiveness of sins and salvation. That's the big, bigger picture. But, but Jesus is starting small here. It's, I, I am the door. And then he says, verse eight, all whoever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. So think about all that ever came before them. Think about all the wicked kings you read about when you go through the Old Testament, all the, all the uh, corrupt priests, uh, all the false prophets. There were even false messiahs that had come. You have all those uh, false leaders coming along, leading sheep astray. And what Jesus uh, likens them to is they're thieves. They're taking sheep. Uh, they're robbing. But the sheep did not hear them. So because Jesus has changed the analogy and he's become the door of his own sheepfold, he's talking about his sheep. The sheep there in his fold will not be duped by the false leaders, the false prophets, the false messiahs and the wicked kings and all those things. They they hear him. I am the door, he says in verse 9. And if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go out in and out and find pasture. I don't see Jesus saying he might be saved. He could possibly be saved. If you enter by the door into the sheepfold of Jesus, you're saved. You're saved. And ultimately saved from what? Well, think about it. If you're saved from the false leaders and the false who lead you away from God, then you're saved from the penalty of sin. What are those religious leaders, what did, what did they just ask? Are we blind also? And Jesus effectively said, yes, so your sin remains. If their sin remains, think about all the people they're leading. They still have sin, right? If the sin of the leaders is still there, the sin of the people is still there. As the leaders go, so go the people, right? That's the picture here. And so they're leading all these people astray. Your sin still remains. So if you haven't come in through Jesus, your sin remains. The penalty of sin is still there. You have to fear judgment, wrath of God, hell. That's the future there. So all who came through Jesus are saved and they will go in and out and find pasture. I love the description there because the the sheep experience something completely different. God's love, God's forgiveness, God's blessings go out to pasture. Pasture is name, it's provision, it's necessity, it's food. 
It's all the things that we need. It brings to life Psalm 23 when you think about it, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He's giving me everything I need. All the necessities abundantly given to me because he's my shepherd. I think Jesus is drawing all these ideas into that. But look at the thief. The thief is an utter contrast in verse 10. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. The false shepherds, like their father, the devil, you remember Jesus called them, they were children of the devil, their father, the devil, they came to steal. They came to kill. They came to destroy. But Jesus came to give life, spiritual life, eternal life. And not just that, but did you notice it? Abundant life, abundantly abundantly. I've heard people try to twist that to say that means your life here on earth is just going to be amazing. You'll be rich. You'll be powerful. You have all you ever need. And boy, that's a discouraging message to get if you find yourself not in that situation, right? Well, I thought I was saved. Where's my abundant life? Well, let me just tell you, abundantly is parasos. It means over and above what is necessary. If you have eternal life, you have over and above what is necessary. You have life abundant. You have life abundant. But the thief, unlike the thief who came to steal and to take a life, Jesus came to give life. Now, this door analogy can be kind of seem like just sort of a, a cold thing. Jesus is a door. He's just a door. And you just go through the door, right? It's kind of like cold. Well, to, so that it doesn't remain that way, he kind of makes it a little bit warmer. He switches here, the analogy, twi- a, a little bit in verse 11. He says this, but I am the good shepherd. I love that. He is, he is the door. He's the way in. But once you're in, now he's your shepherd. He doesn't remain the door. Like, what, isn't that a great thing to know? Like, well, I came in. I, I met Jesus coming in, but uh, where'd he go? Uh, he's still a door, which is an inanimate object, right? But now he's my shepherd. He's not just a shepherd. He's the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd. Um, this is the fourth I am statement. Did you notice? They actually come back to back, right? I am the door is the third. I am the good shepherd is the fourth. But I love the Greek text. It literally, literally reads this, the shepherd, the good one, right? You've had all these bad shepherds. No, 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 I'm a shepherd. No, 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 the good one. I'm, the, I'm that good one that came along. Do you remember me? He's the good shepherd. And the next few verses sort of, sort of give us characteristics of a good shepherd. So we're just going to unpack these here. He says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. And the first characteristic of a good shepherd is he dies for them. Now, it's true you must be willing to die as a shepherd, right? Because you've got to fight off. I mean, David fought off a, a lion and a bear, right? So I'm sure he was willing to die at the hands of a bear um, or a lion for that matter, or both. I don't know if they were a team. I'm not sure how it happened. Um, but a good shepherd would be willing to risk his life. But, but here, it's quite different. Look what he says in verse 11. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. The word is... Tithime, it means to lay down his life. In fact, it's, it's translated that way in verse 15, lay down and, and on. It's actually the same word, gives and lay down. It's tithime, and it just speaks of a voluntary, sacrificial laying down of one's life. He's a good shepherd not because he's just willing to die. He's a good shepherd because he did die. He gives his life for the sheep. That's an amazing thing. But this is contrasted with the hireling. (laughs) Look at verse 12. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling (laughs) and does not care about the sheep. I love that. Well, what's the reason that he fled? Because he's a hireling, man. He's just getting paid for the job. When he sees that wolf coming along, he goes, no amount of money is worth this. I'm out of here. Which means it's about what? Money and self-preservation. It's not about the sheep. But when one is willing to give his life for the sheep, it's about the sheep. Do You see the big difference here. The Pharisees, all the religious leaders of the past were never about the sheep. That's what Jesus or God condemned them for. You feed yourselves. You clothe yourselves. But where are my sheep? What's happening to them? They're obviously cared nothing for the sheep, which is true of these Pharisees because they look what they did to the man born blind. There was no care for him. 
several passages in Zechariah, I think are going to be important to offer an additional backdrop here because this is really quite rich, what's been saying here. In Zechariah chapter 11, verse 17, it says this, Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. His arm shall completely wither and his right eye shall be totally blinded. (laughs) So you have a worthless shepherd. He leaves the flock, right? He's the one that sees the wolf coming, says, I'm out of here. But Zechariah, speaking for God, he's a prophet, says that no, a sword's going to come out against that shepherd. He's worthless. Now, here's here's what's interesting. That's Zechariah chapter 11. You go to Zechariah chapter 13, and there's another shepherd whom the Lord is going to strike. And here it is in verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered Then I will turn my hands against the little ones. This is pretty crazy. Chapter 11, he's condemning uh, worthless shepherds who leave. Here, there's another shepherd that's going to be struck, but it's my shepherd. It's the companion shepherd. And he says, strike the shepherd and the sheep are going to be scattered. Now, here's what's interesting is that Jesus, sitting on the Mount of Olives, quotes this very passage in reference to who? Himself. Himself, in Matthew 26, verse 31, then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. God judges the worthless shepherd for leaving the sheep, and then he strikes the companion shepherd for the sake of the sheep. Chapter 11, chapter 12, uh, 13. And wedged in between those, right, the worthless shepherd in chapter 11, the judgment against the companion shepherd in chapter 13 is Zechariah 12, 10, a passage you know very well. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Now, John will later quote that passage in reference to Jesus' crucifixion. Who's the one that they're going to look upon and mourn because he's been pierced? It's Jesus. But did you notice before that? It's the companion shepherd. It's my shepherd. And God willed that. It's just like we read today in Isaiah 53, 6. It pleased him to crush him. Why? Well, second characteristic of a good shepherd is because He loves the sheep. That's why. That's why. Anyone ever asks you, we don't need to get too theologically deep to to answer this question. Why did Jesus die for me? Very simple answer. Theologically speaking, he loves you. (laughs) He loves you. That's really as deep as you need to go. And that will be deep enough because that kind of love speaks volumes. He's willing to die for you. Amazing. But that is what Jesus says here next. Look at verses 14 and 15. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I'm known by my own sheep. Now, at first, you're going, okay, well, you just said he loves sheep. Let me just, let me tell you what's going on here. This is the word know, gnosko, which, which is, we've used this word a lot. It's to perceive, to understand, right, to gain knowledge. So if you look at this, Jesus knows the sheep. Okay, why does that make Jesus a good shepherd? Because he knows the sheep. Like, you read the next verse, it even becomes more confusing. Look at verse 15. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Like, what is going on? on? How is he a good shepherd? Because he knows me. I mean, doesn't Jesus know everything? Does he know everyone? Well, yeah, yeah, he does. Well, it becomes less confusing when you understand another meaning of the word know, gnosko. The same word is used in this verse. Now, Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Adam knew his wife, and she, again, bore a son named Seth. It speaks of a unique, intimate relationship. And Amos, in chapter 3, verse 2, prophesies it this way. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, God did not only know of one nation on earth, Israel. Is he completely unaware that other nations exist? No. 
What is he speaking of when he says, you only have I known? He's speaking of this unique love relationship with his people. That's what Jesus is saying here. I'm the good shepherd and I know my sheep. He knows you intimately. There is a unique love relationship that is just impossible to explain to people. Impossible. He loves you so deeply. And that love for you is the motivation for laying down his life, or I say one of them, because he loves the Father the same way. He loves you. And he says, as the Father knows me or loves me, even so I know the Father, love the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. All right? The sacrifice comes all out of love, love for the Father, love from the Son, love for you. And it's an incredible thing. But not only does he lay down his life for you, not only does he love you, but here in verse 16, he also is a good shepherd because he's the only one that's able to unite all the sheep. In verse 16, he says something very interesting. The other sheep, other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring and they will hear my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. The other sheep in view here are the Gentiles because remember the original fold is Israel. But there's other sheep, and they're the Gentiles, and, and salvation is available to not just the Jews, but to, to everybody. If you're not of Jewish descent in here, then this is you. You're a, a, other sheep. And so you, you can be grateful that, oh, I'm glad you looked for other sheep, Jesus, and didn't just stop with that group of sheep, because you'd be in trouble. But this would have been a revolutionary concept to the Jews here, because the Jews despised the Gentiles, and even after, you know, they became, some became actual believers, even in the early church, it was very, very difficult for them to understand how, how, how Gentiles could be accepted as equal members in the church, wasn't it? You think back to Peter, it required a vision, right, from God. Here's a sheet. Here's some animals. Kill and eat. Oh, I can't kill and eat because it's unclean, God. Don't you call something unclean that I call clean? I'm going to send you to Cornelius, a, you know, a Gentile. He's going to become saved. And it blows his mind. And he goes back and tells the other disciples, and it blows their mind. Right? And they said, wow, God has granted repentance even to the Gentiles. But even later in Jerusalem, right, they have a council to determine this. Like, how does this work? How can Gentiles be saved? It was very difficult for them to understand. In Ephesians chapter 2, if you want to turn there briefly, Paul describes it so beautifully about what has taken place here and what Jesus is talking about. There are other sheep that Jesus wants to bring so that there would be one fold and one shepherd over the fold. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul is speaking to the two groups, the, the Gentiles and the Jews. And he says this, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, the Jews, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who are near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Pretty credible. Two groups of people at odds. Jesus comes and breaks the hostility and says, I'm going to make one out of the two. And that's what Jesus is talking about here in, in, in John. The other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, uh, for them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. They may hear the, his voice. They might, no, they will hear my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus is able to unite what the Pharisees could not. Remember, they kind of made it an exclusive thing. Remember going way back to, to Jesus cleansing the temple, Right? I mean, the Gentiles were really excluded from that. It was meant to bring everyone there uh, to, to worship together. They said, this is ours. We've created our system. You stand back behind that little wall. That's for the Gentiles. This is the holy people, God's chosen people in here, 
right? An exclusive system of, of works righteousness. But Jesus came and said, you missed it all. It's, it's meant to be for all that worship might come to me. So I'm going to have to come. I'm the one shepherd that, that God had promised. And I'm going to bring uh, all these sheep from all over into one fold and I'll be their shepherd. That's pretty incredible. So he's a good shepherd because he gives his life for the sheep. He loves the sheep, including Gentiles, right? And brings them all into one. He unites them. He's also the good son. Look at verses 17 and 18. Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I, have, I, I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. Two marks, real quick. Two marks uh, are things that mark Jesus as a, as a good son. Uh, love and obedience. Love and obedience. He willingly laid, laid down his life, which shows his obedience to the command of the father, which shows his love uh, to the father. But notice he does it by his own power, by his own power. He uses that word a couple of, of times there. Uh, that word is exousisa, exousisa, right? And it's of authority or power of choice. He's doing it under his own authority. I've chosen to do this. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it again. And this command I've received from my father, Jesus says that he can do it because it's really his choice. But then did you you notice that it's a command? It's a command from the Father. But also, he says, not only can I lay down my life, but I have the power to take it again. You see that word? It's lambano. It means to lay hold of it again. So I have the choice to lay it down, but I also can lay hold of it again. And this command I have laid hold of, received. It's the same word, lambano. So God commands him, yes, he received that command. He laid hold of it. The point is, Jesus wasn't coerced. You go back to Isaiah 53 and you read, it pleased God to, to bruise him and to crush him. You go, oh man, what a, what a terrible God. But then you come here and you go, no, Jesus received that command with joy. He says, no, 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 no one's coerced me. I have the authority. I have the choice to lay it down and I can pick it up again. It's my choice which confirms the fact that he loves you. You guys, if he was, if he was coerced by the Father because, because you know, there's this submission in the Trinity, which does exist, but it's out of love, if he says, you're going to do this for the people, then there's, there's no proof of love for you from either one, right? Jesus is just a liar, says, yeah, I love you, but really it's my Father making me do this. <laughs> that is not, that's not the God we worship. The Trinity is a beautiful mystery, and there's a beautiful love relationship there that we couldn't even possibly understand. And yes, it's a command of the Father. It's the will of the Father. And Jesus says, I will receive that because I love the Father. And I willingly lay down my life for you. And that makes him a good son. Amazing. I think about power here. Jesus had all the power here. You mean, you think about Pilate? And Jesus is in front of Pilate, and, and Pilate thinks he has all this power, doesn't he? He's like, don't you know I have, I have power to end your life, right? I can execute you right now. And Jesus says in John nineteen eleven, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. You don't really have power. You think you have power, but that power came from above. Jesus tells us here, he has that power. I'm the one laying it down. You think you're in power? I'm the one in power. I'm laying it down myself. It's incredible. So Jesus is a good son as well. And then this teaching by Jesus ends like many teachings by Jesus end with division. Therefore, there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, he has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Amazing. Jesus is the true shepherd, the true leader of Israel. The shepherds had failed in their duties. They were negligent. And Jesus comes along and said, I'm the good shepherd. Ultimately, I shame all leaders because no one can love the sheep like Jesus loved the sheep because he gave his life for the sheep. And he unites the sheep into one, right? That's the church today. The church is diverse, Jew, Gentile, everyone, right? We're all, we're all one and we all live under one shepherd. Now it's true 
that churches have under shepherds. I'm just an under shepherd, but I, I have a shepherd. Do you know that? <laughs> right? You know I have a shepherd too. He, he is my shepherd. He's your shepherd. And a shepherd implies this, that you, you listen to him, you hear his voice, and you follow him. He's your good shepherd. And my encouragement to you today is, is follow him. Love him. He loves you. He knows what's best for you. Sometimes when he's leading our lives in certain directions, we're like, I'm not so sure he loves me. Right? You might be looking like, this doesn't translate as love to me. Right? I, I wouldn't say this is love. This stinks the direction my life is going. Sometimes it looks like that from our perspective. But do you really believe that, that Jesus is a good shepherd? That he knows more what is best for your life? I do. So you trust him with that, right? Okay, you showed your love for me. I can't doubt that. You gave your life for me. I will follow you. I will follow you. This, this is hard. I won't, I won't deny that. This road is difficult, but I'm going to follow you because I love you. Love your shepherd. He is a good shepherd. He loves his sheep. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word today. You are indeed a good shepherd, and you do love us. You do know us so well. There's a love that is so deep and so mystical almost. We can't possibly really fathom or understand that you have for us. It's a love we desire to duplicate. It's a love we desire to share. And I know we fall short of that so often. Lord, I know I do. I want to emulate that. I want to emulate that love toward others. So, God, I just pray that you'd help us as a church to just continue to follow you, to trust in you. As David said, you lead us beside still waters. You restore our souls. Where we truly can find peace and fulfillment and contentment when we're at ease under the leadership of the shepherd. You're a good shepherd. You're, You're a loving shepherd. And I pray that we would just submit to you and follow you where you lead. For your glory, we pray.